This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. When a white couple invites Trelawney, son of Jamaican immigrants living in Miami, to watch them have sex, they ask him to make sure he wears his baggiest pants and a hoodie sweatshirt. This is just one of an ocean of racial reckonings that churn through Jonathan Escoffrey's magnificent collection of short stories, If I Survive You. Linked together by the stories of Trelawney's parents who moved back and forth between Kingston and the U.S. and his brother Delano, If I Survive You ask the question of what exactly draws the distinction between living and survival for a family that is alienated by the English they speak, their blackness, which is never black enough for some, despite signaling their difference at every turn. Told in a dizzying array of voices and tones with hilarity and sorrow mixed as an intoxicating brew, Jonathan Escoffrey's writing refuses easy comparison. Championed by the likes of Percival Everett, Marlon James, Matt Johnson, and Anne Patchett as a -a one-of-a-kind talent, Jonathan has created an immigrant family that defies stereotype. Trelawney and his family do not ask for pity or commiseration, but rather for recognition that being pulled between two worlds leaves scars and marks, even as it offers two homes. If I Survive You is a gift to American literature, and its many audiences will find themselves in its imaginative world. Jonathan is currently a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, and If I Survive You was longlisted for the National Book Award this year. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be here. I really love this collection. I think it's 
it is remarkable for a lot of reasons. There have been some very good linked story collections this year, and it feels like a form that it is having its moment. I wonder what appeals about having Trelawney and the story of his family come to us in parts rather than with that required continuity of time flow that a novel demands. I think the link story uh, form allowed me to focus on individual aspects of this family's life that I was interested in exploring. So the opening story titled, titled Influx is a story that very closely explores Trelawney and by extension, his family's uh, identities, exploring the way that they have to move through the world um, in this new context, having packed up their lives and moved from Kingston, Jamaica to Miami, Florida. And I, I, I knew that the, the rest of the book was going to be exploring a, a lot of other things. Uh, for much of the book, Trelawney is living out of his car. He's taking on odd jobs. Um, he is trying to figure out how to literally survive, how to put a roof back over his head. But in this opening story, I really wanted to explore, well, who is this character uh, in the first place? And, you know, what, what makes him... Um, move through the world and and uh, get the responses uh, that he does from outsiders. Um, that, what exactly is it about his racial makeup or his Jamaican heritage or other elements of his identity that are um, creating these, in a sense, uh, uncomfortable moments for, for other people, for people outside of his family, um, their, their discomfort with him and his family. Um, and so I, I wanted to, in a sense, take, uh, you know, I was going to say a moment, but take, take <laughs> 30 or so pages and, and really explore um, this idea of, of what makes up an identity in the first place. And, um, uh, you know, as the title Influx suggests, the identity that Trelawney carries with him, it, it, it does fluctuate depending on geography. Um, people respond to his physical presentation differently in Miami than they do in Jamaica versus the upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, these are, this for me was a real opportunity to just follow that particular thread over the course of a couple of decades. And um, I, I knew it was something that was going to continue. It's a, it's a thread that isn't completely dropped throughout the rest of the book, uh, but I, I wanted to kind of put the microscope on that particular thread. And so as we move from story to story, there were just different threads that I wanted to put a kind of hyper focus on so that um, I could explore them in a, in, a, in a way that felt complete to me. Um, and that allowed for um, you know, the various modes of storytelling that, that, the, that I'm choosing for the, the different stories, um, whether it's a, a kind of um, retrospective first-person narrative or it's um, a, a present tense uh, third-person narrative, I, I, I wanted to figure out which mode of storytelling was going to meet the task of following these individual threads. Yeah, and, and I'll stay for a second with that flux of identity. And one of the most remarkable parts in that, I believe it's in the first story, is when Trelawney discovers that his 
uh, amorphous racial identity in Miami is is really quite pinpointed in the upper Midwest. He's just black in the upper Midwest, where he is somewhere between black and brown and kind of white in in Miami. And he is so often mistaken for something he's not and soon realizes, you know, especially in the Midwest, that that's sort of the, the condition for every person of color to be asked to stand in for one thing or another. And that's, I should say, it's the clearest in the Midwest. It's everywhere that he goes in the U.S. Could you talk a little bit about how the stories have Trelawney encounter these new forms of this race problem? You know, I'm thinking about you know, how it is he works through identity as both wanting at times a black identity and then at others a Jamaican identity and and never being allowed to have the identity that he might particularly want. Yeah, I think that's such a good question. Um, you know, I, I think for much of the book, Chalani is really looking for acceptance. And it, that's the thing that he's having a very difficult time finding. Um, at a certain point in the opening story in Flux, uh, after Hurricane Andrew destroys the family home and the family has to move to a different part of uh, South Florida, they move from Dade County to Broward County, and he finds himself in middle school, uh, new school. He's a, he's a, uh, he, he has no friends here, but he's embraced by uh, what's referred to as the brown boys, it's the, the Puerto Rican boys. And they accept him because they believe he looks uh, most like them. And it, it, in terms of, you know, whether he would be um, fitting in with the other black kids or the the white kids, like he, he seems to be, you know, uh, visually <laughs> a, a, a match for their group. And it's not until he kind of outs himself as Jamaican when they notice that he doesn't speak Spanish, um, that he's cast out of this group. And I, I think, you know, it's it's a moment that um, exemplifies his longing for, for acceptance. Um, it, he goes to Jamaica eventually as an adult and in, in the same, in a similar way, the, he's not able to use the language in a way that would allow him to completely fit. Um, and when he's, you know, in the upper Midwest where it's kind of decided, or at least for a time, it's decided by everybody around him that he is just unquestionably black. I, I think if, if un being unquestionably black was something that people treated as a, positive thing or something that actually mm -hmm. allowed him mm -hmm. to fit within a community if it was something that wasn't um, restrictive of his full humanity um, I, I think that that would be you know a very good thing for people for people to just say hey this is just what you are I think he's looking for um, some kind of solid ground where he can say yes this is what I am but what I am is not um, so limited by by others expectations and I, I think that's you know thinking about the the story or maybe the book or you know the way I opened the book it, it's not that Chalani is ever particularly interested at least as an adult he's, he's not interested in escaping all of these things um, it's more that 
you know, he finds just a really hard time being accepted by, by others. And Mm -hmm. um, I, for, for my part as the, you know, the, the author's project insofar as, you know, we decide what a thing might be about. I I really wanted to defamiliarize um, Trelawney's version of blackness. It's, it's Mm -hmm. not that he is, is trying to hit the ejector seat on it, or, or on his Jamaicanness, for that matter, either, or, or any other part of his identity that that truly belongs to him. But it's more like, you know, we we especially as as writers and readers, we like to think of ourselves as you know enlightened people who don't make a, a, you know a ton of assumptions about uh, about others. And you know, I, I think we as as human beings have our, our limitations. And so I really wanted to trouble a lot of these ideas and these definitions of of blackness or or these other uh elements of of identity yeah you you trouble it so fascinatingly with colorism which you take on very directly by name and you describe a get-together in in which south americans and and puerto ricans are each trying to claim a kind of european ancestry i a really a colonial ancestry rather than an indigenous or an African heritage for fear of being cast as a different, a very different kind of black. The irony is that such designations are, are all but ignored in the U.S., which abides by this sort of one drop of color law when treating people according to their race. We rarely get these examples of how colorism divides majority non-white countries. Was, what was interesting about opening that Pandora's box? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a, an interesting thing. I, I think people want the, uh, and this is, I mean, it's going to sound obvious, but people want to be able to live in such a way that they can express their full humanity. And mm-hmm. the thing that I witnessed as somebody who went to grad school in the Midwest um, and, and, and living in Minneapolis, that was that was the first time as an adult that I had ever lived outside of Miami. And what I saw was that there, there were a lot of people like no matter what their background was, or I should say almost no matter what their background was, um, there was this, it, it, it was clear that where a lot of people were coming from, they had been able to um, express more of that full humanity. And what they found was that in as they had, you know, a lot of us were transplants, and, and that's particularly what I'm talking about. The transplants to this new city found that they were being challenged. Their full humanity was being challenged in a way that they had maybe never experienced before. Um, what is, I think, interesting to me, and, and, and those are the moments where I'm thinking of these uh, college students who are saying, who are, as you, 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 you described, they were clinging to the uh, the, the colonial history, um, they were saying, I'm, I'm from this country and, you know, we're more similar to Europeans or, or my specific bloodline goes back to the, uh, European colonizers. And, you know, that I, I don't think the impulse to defend your full humanity is a bad thing or an unnatural thing at all. Um, and I, I think what's, fascinating though to me is that when you take 
blackness in the American context, the, the United States context, you you have people who say who see that they have to defend their humanity and and it's absurd that they should have to defend their full humanity. But when you put the black body in the room, they kind of can't they kind of believe that you are actually different. <laughs> you are are actually somebody who should fit within the constraints of what we believe blackness to be. And, you know, that was the thing that I actually found su so surprising about, you know, my experience really, I mean, traveling through throughout the, the U.S. and, and living in, in different cities in, in the U.S. was this idea where people say, you know, it's it's absurd that my full humanity is being challenged. And I will respond, yeah, it's absurd that your humanity is challenged. It's absurd that my full humanity is challenged. And when mm -hmm. I say that, I get this response like, oh, no, your humanity should be challenged. Obviously, they don't use those full words, but there's this kind of surprise. <laughs> you know, I mean, clearly they, they, but it's always this kind of surprise on on their faces. I, I'm very interested in that you don't you don't idealize Jamaica in these stories. It's for Trelawney's parents, for others, it is a place of difficult choices. And when struggling how to live in the U.S. and thinking about Jamaica as an alternative, it, it's not an easy choice. Trelawney's mother at one point chooses Kingston over the U.S., acknowledging or at least the story acknowledging that the murder rate is sky high, but that she feels safer there. What does this conflicted relationship with Jamaica mean to you in, in these stories? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a certain point in the book where Chilani is trying to idealize Jamaica, or at least the idea of an alternate um, I don't know, uh, an alternate possibility of his family never having left Jamaica. And I think he, mm -hmm. he romanticizes an idea about what it would have been like just to stay in the home country where he wouldn't be constantly accosted with these ideas of, um, you know, who or, or what he is, um, at least not in the same ways, at least not in ways that limit his possibilities um and and i did I, I i thought it would be a useful conversation to have chalani uh, make the mistake of of idealizing it uh, meanwhile his parents understand the reasons why they chose to leave um at, at the time that they did and and you know that was another benefit of to me telling the stories or telling the the larger narrative through individual stories i suppose a novel could do the the exact same thing and bring in a, a, another uh character's voice but i i knew the bulk of the book the bulk of the family narrative was going to be told from Trelawney's point of view mm -hmm. so i didn't want i didn't want a kind of uneven uh storytelling mode where i brought topper the father uh brought him in for only one chapter but Topper is very a, a useful character to explore that idea of exactly why they left, so that we see the violence that's happening as it happens, and we see the choice that he and Sonia have to make to um, protect the the family and and move them over to 
uh, Miami. And of course, I, I wanted to show versions of, you know, it's, it's, it's done briefly, but there are the families who did not ch uh, choose to leave Jamaica. And through Chelani's eyes, they're, they're not just doing okay, they're, they're thriving in a way that he wishes his family mm -hmm. um, had thrived. And, and so I wanted to show just how complicated this, um, this is. I mean, again, he had the family not left and had they survived some of the, the turmoil, um, they, they wouldn't have that, uh, that racialized, minoritized experience where they, as, um, as Jamaicans in Jamaica, they, they would be able to, uh, you know, they would have the same struggles that, or they would, they would have the struggles that we, we all have, um, in terms of trying to make a life, but, uh, it, it wouldn't be with this, you know, this, these racial marks against you that Jelani's mm -hmm. kind of born with, uh, and, and of course, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of my point of view. That's kind of Chelani's point of view, but then you bring in a topper's point of view who says, you know, to, to, to walk around with such a uh, perspective is to have a victim mindset. And so it, it, for me, it was, it's kind of um, the, the more well-rounded conversation brings in opinions that I don't even necessarily agree with all the time or, 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 or as my opinions fluctuate, you know, sometimes I do, uh, agree a little bit more with Topper who, who thinks he made the right decision to leave. And then sometimes I, I agree a little bit more with, uh, Trelawney who, who thinks, well, had we made it, we would have been in a, a country we could call our own and we could have full, uh, full, full citizenship in a, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not like Jamaica doesn't have uh, the historical baggage, uh, but it's it's a different thing when you are part of the 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 majority. Um, it's Jamaica being a, a majority Black country, and again, they have that as a multi multi generationally mixed family. They fall in on the privileged side in, in Jamaica. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, would that necessarily make Trelawney a, a, a better person to have been born there and, and never having to understand, um, you know, what it's like to be not handed uh, a bunch of privileges, especially as a, a, a lighter skinned uh, male Jamaican? You know, I, I don't think it would necessarily make him a better person. But I think it could make him a, a more comfortable person, and yeah. um, those are, you know, ideas I'm, I'm just constantly uh, interested in exploring. Yeah, you have you've created a really memorable set of voices in "If I Survive You." Some of that has to do with your interweaving of Jamaican patois with other forms of English. Did you want to signal specifically to? Uh, diasporic Jap uh, Jamaican readership that you were marking them as a kind of primary audience and that and were you worried at all that the average American reader might balk at having to do a little bit of translating for themselves and perhaps that is the point understanding what it means to be translating between forms of English uh Perhaps that is part of the point. <laughs> I, I would agree there. I, I think when it came to telling 
in particular in the telling of Topper's story in the story under the Aki tree, I really saw no other way that Topper would express ideas and um, express himself in terms of telling himself the story of his own life without using the language. Um, I thought it would just be absolutely absurd if I would try to adopt a language that's not his own in order to tell a story um, that he's telling to himself (laughs) that is somehow going to have to be translated through some kind of idea of a standardized American English. It it just, it would, to me, it would all fall apart there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, through the other stories, the the, the Jamaican dialect, kind of the, the patois, it, it it pops up here and there, and it's 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 lighter, and I, I think um, it's it's not necessarily the point of those stories. But for for that one in particular, for under the Aki tree, um, I, I really wanted to get deep into the language. I, I also thought, you know, it's in a way it's carrying, even as, you know, it's only the first several pages that the family is still living in Jamaica. And I wanted to carry Jamaica forward into this uh, experience um, in the United States for this family and, and show the way that, you know, it's it's not like you get off the plane and your immigrant experience is over, you know, it's yeah. not that <laughs> hour and a half uh, flight from Kingston to Miami. Um, it's it's a lot more than that. The Jamaicanness is still with this family, and even for a character like Chelani, you know, he's he's grown up in the U.S. He's born in the U.S., but he's growing up in a, a Jamaican household, and and that's the the roof that he's under. It's a Jamaican <laughs> roof, if I can use that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so he is truly the recipient of multiple cultures in that way. Uh, he's stepping outside that door every day for school. Um, and you know, the, the, the world is not here to the world of Miami or the world of the U S it's not here to cater to Jamaicanness by any means. But once he's back inside that house, you know, it's, it's a Jamaican family. And, um, to, to me, the language is a way to signal that without having to <laughs> hammer the idea home mm-hmm. the way that I'm trying to right now. Uh, it's, you know, it's that family culture. It's it's still there. And, you know, Chelani resists it until he doesn't. In that story that you mentioned under the Aki tree, it it is the the strongest use of the the patois in the in the beginning section there and i think it's really clever that that you're using a second person narration there which is both the sort of trickiest of the voices but it also um does some wonder wonderful work of drawing the reader into being the you that represents trelawney's father so there's a sort of mirror mirroring there and you essentially ask the reader to inhabit his voice and hear the things that he hears directly as a kind of you how did the second person help you give a different vantage on the father character I do agree with you in terms of putting the reader in the the place of the uh, of the father of the, the the narrator in a sense uh, but I was also looking at it as topper telling himself the story of his life and to me that's always a the advantage of that narrative uh choice is that 
you can make decisions about what it is that the character would explain to uh, himself in this case and what he wouldn't. And so for me, he doesn't need to spend a lot of time explaining what Jamaica is because he he's Jamaican. He grew up there. He knows it. He's he's not explaining, you know, what the language is. He's he's not um, he's not breaking out the the dictionary of, of Jamaican terms um, for for an assumed audience that is not Jamaican. The 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 teller is Jamaican and the recipient of the tale is Jamaican in in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that created the rules of what got told and what didn't. Ah. Um, and, and for me, that's a, it's a helpful tool because, you know, from the writer's point of view, you can tell anything and you could, you could put all kinds of extraneous information into a story. And for me, that helped me streamline the story, um, while also keeping a kind of rhythm. There's the you, but there's also this if then setup that the story utilizes. So, or uses so that, um, we, 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 the story sets up the options. You can do this or you can do this or you can do this. And, but once the choice is made, you know, we make our, our choices in life and we have to live with the consequences. Um, and, and we see that unfolding at a kind of rapid pace, um, as the story covers several decades of, of Topper's life. Um, and there's also, as he's the one pouring over the details of his life, he's, he's able to, I, th- I think there's judgment there. I think there's regret there in the way that um, he's he's narrating some of his decisions. And then there's there, you know, I think there's lots of humor there as well as, as in terms of um, maybe showing uh, the ways in which Topper can be short-sighted at times, or the the way he, you know, his. What's fun about writing these characters is that I think they all have a logic <laughs> and, you know, sometimes, you know, both Topper and, and Trelawney, I mean, they can make a lot of sense and still do questionable things or, or perhaps, mm. you know, we can go so far as to say make the wrong choices, yeah. even though there's a kind of, there's a kind of logic to why they made most of the choices. I, I think, I, I think Trelawney's a, an incredibly intelligent character, but he focuses sometimes on, on the wrong things. And so, you know, just as a, a narrative mode, I thought there was just lots of, of opportunity with the you and using that, that Patois. Uh, I, I've, I've always been somebody who, likes to be challenged as a reader and so i thought and and i mean i think there's evidence to 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 suggest that i was correct in my assumption that making readers work just a little bit more would make them invest more in this story and make them get more Mm -hmm. out of this story and under the ackee tree is really the story that helps me get to where I'm at in terms of the success of the the book or having the book uh, come out at all, because mm-hmm. um, it, it was a story that we put out in the parish review and it just got a, a phenomenal response um, and won the Plimpton prize. And, and it, things started to really uh, pick up momentum 
moving towards the publication of this book as a result of of writing that story and i'm i'm an admirer of great first lines in stories and you have some amazing first lines but i'm especially keen on the way you handle your first paragraphs which are often a wonderful bait and switch one of my favorites is the beginning of the story independent living would you read the first two paragraphs of that story for us I'd be happy to. If you ask me, what do you do for a living? I might admit that I hunt elderly people. I wrangle them, force them into stiff, scratchy chairs before interrogating them. I get out of them whether they have a job or a niece who sends them checks every month and whether they've acquired a cat. I figure out if they smoke and if they do so inside their apartments. I coerce them into signing forms not least among them, the independent living agreement, which states that if you, as a renter at Silver Towers, cannot care for yourself or hire the necessary help, then you can no longer reside here. I chase down tenants. Currently, I'm chasing the fastest. Carlos Rodriguez is always running. Dude's wiry, with skin like beef jerky from the neck down. But from the way he hurdles past his Silver Towers neighbors, you might guess he was a high school track star. When I'd catch him in the building's elevator, back when I could catch him, I'd watch his feet in full bounce, sneakers flopping up like fish blown ashore in a storm. His knees would jerk forward in his khakis, right, left, right, left, right. As he, as he watched the little yellow light descend from four to three to two, and as I'd begin to mention that his annual recertification was approaching, he'd sprint out the elevator doors, flashing over his shoulder a youthful, though somewhat rotten, smile. Hmm. Thank you so much. In the opening lines, we worry about an actual bad guy violence, but the paragraphs that follow carry the revelation that it is a subtler capitalistic violence meted out on the elderly that live in subsidized housing. Can you talk about that bleeding together you did there, that bait and switch between those two kinds of violences? Yeah, and, and thank you for that uh, that description of the movement from the open and into the rest of the story. It, it is a story that, for me, allows for the exploration of um, Tulani's attempts at surviving, moving from living out of his vehicle to, you know, hopefully being able to afford to rent an apartment. And he is struggling to figure out what kind of things he's willing to do in order to house himself, essentially. He he continues to ask himself, what kind of man are you? And as he sees it, he is, is trying to be, I, I think when we open up where he's saying he, you know, he hunts elderly people, mm -hmm. I think he's trying to be harder and more cold hearted than he actually is. I think he's trying to be somebody who um, will survive at all costs. And yet he's he's struggling with this job that is asking him to treat elderly people in a way that he he questions. You know, he's 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 sort of kind of chasing them down <laughs> in a way that, you know, is is running them down in a way that is detrimental to their their health. Um, he's seen as the uh, the face of rent increases 
um, and receives hate mail as a result. Mm -hmm. Some some quite hilarious hate hate mail. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) He's being told to die. He's receiving um, etches of, (laughs) of, uh, you know, these, these notes that are kind of comical. Some are kind of threatening. Um, but he's and he's being bribed in ways small and and, and larger, um, and he's trying to figure out you know what are the limits to how I'm going to I guess bend my morals to allow me to get myself out of this very difficult situation that I'm in, which is again you know uh, living out of my vehicle, um, struggling to eat healthy meals, all, all of the things that come with, um, you know, living in poverty in a sense, but at the same time, he's the face of, um, the, the people in power. He's, he's in the, he's perceived to be in the seat of power, um, Mm -hmm. by the people who are living in this low income elderly housing. And so I really wanted to kind of complicate this idea of, um, you know, what it is exactly that we have to do in order to survive. And at the same time, like what's, what kind of um, spiritual or, or moral death might you suffer? Mm. Uh, might you be, you know, in, in, in danger of, of uh, suffering if you, uh, if you're willing to harm others for upward uh, advancement. And um, I, I just thought that was a, this, this job is uh, that Chalani works is uh, a, a good place, a good vehicle to explore some of those ideas. Yeah. And it's the, it is the story perhaps where we feel the most Trelawney's humanness, even as he often makes decisions that maybe fall in in a kind of morally ambiguous um, area. He also feels richly human. He's struggling to survive himself. Every decision he's making about whether to pursue someone for this money that he knows is is wrong and is exploitative, and at the same time thinking about his own survival, his housing. Will he eat? Will be he be able to pay for the things he needs? And that kind of conflict makes him intensely human, I think. Good. I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I, th- <laughs> I, I think uh, the nature of a lot of these stories, the challenge that I face as the author of a lot of these stories is that people are coming to them from a range of experiences. And so if you've never if you've never even wondered what it would be like to have to skip a meal because you just can't afford it, I have been, <laughs> I suppose, challenged at times uh, or, or, or people have expressed um, a kind of difficulty with some of the things that Trelawney does. Um, and, and I think that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. readers are, are kind of, uh, co-creators or the experience of reading is one of, of collaboration and co-creation. Um, but the, the stories, I mean, they are meant to make readers a little bit uncomfortable and make them have to ask some of these questions. Uh, you know, what would you do if you were in such a situation? What would you do if you were offered an opportunity to, um, you know, survive or, or gain health. <laughs> Shalani, mm-hmm. uh, he at one point is watching a documentary on 
the poaching of rhinos in Africa, and and he feels like he he wants to defend these these uh, animals, and yet he has a dream about being offered a uh, a ground up unicorn horn that's supposed to give him everlasting health, and he's you know he he turns to the reader and he says you know what what would you do if you mm-hmm. were offered such an opportunity? And I, I think that's what a lot of the book is is asking you know what how how do you uh, get through such a difficult life without doing questionable things. Mm-hmm. Before I let you go, I'm dying to know what you've been reading lately, and and maybe if you have some suggestions for what our listeners might put next on their bedside table. Oh, recently, I've you know as a debut author. 2022 debut author i've uh really tried to keep up with the the other debuts um who are kind of my my cohort i suppose um so i've been reading a a a lot of uh 2022 debuts um i read tess gunty's the rabbit hutch which was the the winner of the national book award this year um it's a really phenomenal novel um yeah, we had Tess on the show, and she was great, and I, I do love that novel very much. Yeah, really, um, it's one of those novels where you're interested in the storyline, but you also understand that you're kind of just learning a lot about the world <laughs> at the same time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, that's some some of my favorite kind of uh, storytelling. Um, Sarah Thankham Matthews, um, All This Could Be Different, I just finished, which is also a, a really wonderful book, um, novel. Uh, yeah, she's, a, she's another, another favorite of the show. And that, that book is, yeah, it's a knockout. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one where, um, I mean, this is another thing I, I think is, it's like a, a talent that, uh, some writers have, which is, I kind of still feel like I'm hanging out with those characters. Totally. Yeah. Like I either want to be, or I feel like I am. It's yeah. And I think if you can, we'd make, be so um, lucky. <laughs> right. Exactly. So if you can create characters that, uh, readers just really want to hang out with or, or, um, or kind of still do in our imaginations. I mean, what a, what a gift that is. Um, and then I'll give you one more uh, debut that I, I really loved. Sweet, Soft, Plenty, Rhythm, Laura Worrell's uh, novel. I don't know which, this one. Oh, you should check it out. It's about this, this jazz player. It's kind of this musician playboy who has all of these relationships uh, with these different women. But we get to spend time with him and all of these, these these women that he has these varying relationships with. I mean, some of them are are serious, more serious romantic relationships. Some of them less so. And then we even actually, my favorite character in the book is uh, the character of uh, the daughter of the of this musician who is just really yearning for her father's love and attention. And um, uh it's it's just a again it's like a phenomenal book i'm always i also always admire novels that can create um a lot of characters with a lot of uh distinct voices and Mm -hmm. i thought that um she really pulled off i don't it's it's like a dozen different 
characters and, and all of their voices are, are extremely distinct. And I think part of that is because the psychology of how they're seeing the world is, is distinct. And, you know, I'm basically just naming like all of the things that I would steal from these three authors. (laughs) So yeah, I really admire those three. Well, thank you so much. And I'm excited to have a, a new book to dig into. And it's just been a pleasure to talk with you about If I Survive You, which is really a tremendous book. And I'm so glad it's getting a ton of recognition and attention. It's really deserved. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Jonathan Escoffrey. It was such a pleasure to discuss his debut story collection, If I Survive You. You can purchase Jonathan's book and all his other recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous 70 episodes. Take a moment and leave a starred review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. It helps us attract new listeners. Later this week, we'll be talking with Krista Bilton about her amazing new memoir, Normal Family. It is an unblinkingly honest memoir about the ways in which our families, every kind of family, can both fail and uplift us. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Books.